Hi, Salima here, and it's time to put your money where your media is. Please support Making Contact and click the donate button at radioproject.org. Please help us produce our people-powered radio at radioproject.org. Thank you, and here's the show. This week on Making Contact. You'll be sitting watching something on a film and something like that will come up, some sort of psychological abuse or physical abuse. And within a second, it takes you right back. And it was 27 years ago. It's never left me. And at my age, I don't think it ever will. Domestic abuse affects everyone it touches. Intimate partners, children and elders. Victims of domestic violence, regardless of where they are in the world, can share similar experiences of abuse and their escape from it. Fortunately, even in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, support services in the U.S. and around the world are continuing to operate 24-7. But the pandemic has created new problems and made some worse. This was particularly true during the early weeks of the shelter-in-place orders. In this show, we'll hear from an advocate who provides services to victims of domestic violence about the challenges that COVID-19 poses for victims and their advocates. But first, we head to the United Kingdom, where lawmakers are considering a landmark bill that could change the way countries in the UK handle domestic abuse cases and potentially establish misogyny as a hate crime. From London, here's Rosie McLeod with the story. On the 23rd of March, UK residents were ordered to stay at home to stop the spread of COVID-19. Two weeks later, calls to the domestic abuse helpline shot up by 120% within a single 24-hour window. By supporting survivors through the proposed domestic abuse bill, lawmakers hope to end the long-term effects that accompany violence in the home. I've skimmed the report, I'll be honest, and I can't, there's nothing in there that I can say I might be wrong about funding. Karen Bellamy is the CEO of LVE Charitable Foundation and holds a local elected office. Bellamy is compiling an exhaustive report into issues of domestic violence, violence against women and girls, and the response of charities, shelters, doctors and the police. The work is rooted in her personal experience. Um, In a past relationship, I suffered 10 years, what I would call extreme domestic violence and psychological abuse. So um, from being beaten to being uh, locked in the flat 12 floors high and being told, I hope there's not a fire today. That level of control extended beyond the walls of Karen Bellamy's home. I stopped working. My partner wrote the letter that said that I was leaving because when I used to leave from work, he would wait for me. And if if a, a man at work, a boy at work said anything to me, when I got home, oftentimes the clothes that I was wearing that day would be torn off me and just ripped to bits. Karen Bellamy escaped this relationship, but it took years. Now, as a survivor, she uses her platform to help other victims of abuse. Through her experience, Bellamy understands the deep-running repercussions that survivors live with. It's still very hard because you'll be sitting watching something on, on a film or something, and something like that will come up, some sort of psychological abuse or physical abuse. And um, within a second, a nanosecond, it takes you right back. I mean, I'm 60 now, and it was 27 years ago. So it will never, it's never left me. Um, and at my age, I don't think it ever will. Domestic violence extends beyond the physical, 
from the drip-drip of psychological abuse to control over finances. Karen Bellamy experienced a form of this when her abuser forced her to quit her job. Under the UK's Domestic Abuse Bill, this would constitute economic abuse, that is, interfering with someone's ability to acquire, keep and use money. But that is just one part of it. An overarching goal in passing this bill is to completely revamp the way legal systems and the public define domestic abuse. Councillor Grace Williams is a local cabinet member for children, young people and families. Abuse doesn't just look like um, physical abuse, you know, it can be coercive control, it can be emotional, it can be financial. So for us, having that kind of comprehensive definition of abuse will help us to tackle um, the issues that we're facing, you know, how it affects um, different family members, including children, um, how it affects people's ability to uh, you know, move out of uh, the situation um, and be in financial control. So I've, I think it's much clearer about, you know, the impact on the victim um, and ensuring that the victim is recognised um, as um, a person who needs support um, rather than having a kind of adversarial legal um, system. According to documents on the Home Office website, The definition of domestic abuse in the bill comes in two parts. The first part deals with the relationship between the abuser and the abused. The second part defines what constitutes abusive behaviour. The new definition would be helpful because it reframes the issue away from common misconceptions of domestic abuse. The onus is on the victim to change their behaviour by leaving. And if you look at the sort of dialogue about it, it's all about, well, why does the woman stay? Why has she gone back? Why didn't she report it? But but we know that things are more complex than that. And we know that we have to put some responsibility on the perpetrator to actually change their behaviour. So the focus on the perpetrator is for them to see their behaviour as a problem. And that's a really key part of it. The bill also proposes a measure very similar to sex offender registries in the US and the UK. Like Megan and Sarah's laws, it's also named after the case that implicated it. Claire's law is um, part of the bill, which will be a list of, uh, like like the sexual abuse list, like the um, paedophile list, so that you can go on and see if somebody has been prosecuted or has any history of domestic abuse so when you meet somebody you don't know you know you don't know the ins and outs of where they've been what they've done it's a new situation you're getting to know people whereas if you can check that you can protect yourself and to me that's what Claire's Law is about is being able to protect yourself and um, potential victims being able to take control. While some have criticised the law's female name because it implies that only women suffer domestic abuse, Claire's law has been largely welcomed as a protective measure against it. Women's Aid is one of four charities working to end domestic violence throughout the UK. In 2019, they reported that 64% of referrals to shelters were declined. The Domestic Abuse Bill would seek to remedy that by guaranteeing safe accommodation for those fleeing domestic abuse in England. Refuge is the UK's largest provider of shelter services. From Refuge, here's Cordelia Tucker O'Sullivan. The number of bed spaces available in England is currently 30% below the minimum number 
recommended by the Council of Europe. And this shortfall makes it really difficult for some women to access refuge accommodation and often takes a woman several attempts before she is successful. There is a new legal duty in the Domestic Abuse Bill currently going through Parliament on local areas to assess need for accommodation-based services for survivors of domestic abuse and make sure that they commission services based on that need. Because of that legal duty, Tucker O'Sullivan is hopeful that the bill could relieve increased stress on the shelter's system, particularly during the pandemic. Refuge really welcomes the Domestic Abuse Bill. It's been several years in the making, so we're really pleased that it's making progress and will return to Parliament in the autumn. We are particularly pleased that their new legal duty on local areas is included in there so that refuge accommodation can finally be put on a more sustainable footing. As the government has said on many occasions, this is a once-in-a-generation opportunity to transform the response to domestic abuse. While groups are welcoming the bill, its authors left out protections for one of the most vulnerable populations in the UK, migrant women and children. Some people, because of their immigration status are afraid to report their abuser, and some are even denied shelter when fleeing for their lives. This leaves some immigrant women and kids with fewer options. Groups such as Step Up Migrant Women UK are calling for safe reporting mechanisms for immigrant women to be included in the bill. I mean, I suppose this is just what our legal system's like, isn't it? it kind of, It's the sort of legal system that's got all these kind of... Well, it's just very old-fashioned, isn't it? Many internet users... Often women cite the UK law as failing to protect people against crimes aided by digital technologies. For example, those around revenge porn. Revenge porn is now illegal in this country as of, I think it was April, the law came in. And Refuge has noted shortcomings of this nature in the Domestic Abuse Bill. One area that is currently missing and that Refuge has launched a campaign on are threatening to share intimate images. Refuge has a specialist tech abuse team that was set up a couple of years ago and they told us that one of the biggest problems the women we support were facing is threats from abusers to share intimate images of them without their consent. Threatening to share an intimate image is not currently a crime, even though the actual sharing of the image is. Refuge conducted a survey that found one in 14 adults in England and Wales have been threatened with sharing an intimate image. This is equivalent to 4.4 million people. This issue is even more prevalent amongst young people, with one in seven young women having experienced threats to share intimate images. The vast majority of threats to share intimate images take place in a domestic abuse context, so it is unquestionably a domestic abuse issue. Refuge's research found that 83% of women felt such threats negatively impacted their mental and emotional well-being, with one in 10 feeling suicidal as a result. A further one in ten felt forced to compromise their safety by granting the abuser access to children or even resuming the abusive relationship. Refuge then launched the campaign, The Naked Threat, to change the law and make this form of domestic abuse illegal. The government now has the perfect opportunity with the Domestic Abuse Bill to make changes to the law and make threats to share intimate images a crime. Both Refuge's campaign and Claire's law indicate new preventative methods for tackling domestic abuse. And another proposed deterrent is the motion to make misogyny a hate crime. This would allow judges to impose longer sentences for crimes against women. I'll put it all here in one sentence, right? I think men should be grateful that women want equality, not revenge.
Comedian and activist Kate Smirthwaite famously suffers a large amount of misogynistic online abuse. Her trolls have even written to the venues hiring her, falsely claiming she is difficult to work with and does not pay her taxes. I have been to the police and reported crimes, both online and offline, and said to the police, well, this is definitely motivated by sexism, this is motivated by misogyny. And firstly, the police have referred me to agencies who specifically support victims of hate crime. And I've then gone to those agencies and they've gone, oh, no, sorry, misogyny doesn't count. And I also have had the experience of experiencing hate crime that was definitely about me being a woman, but that was also contained racist elements, and which might seem weird given that I'm white. And not that people were hating me for being white, but quite the opposite, that people were using racist language towards me um, because I was dating somebody who wasn't white or I was with somebody who wasn't white or I was talking about race-related issues and their conclusion was, well, you're of no use to the white race. And I do notice that when there's racism or anti-Semitism in the abuse, it does get taken more seriously by the police, which leads me to believe that if we classified being a woman um, as one of the characteristics that was protected, it would push the police to take this stuff more seriously. Like Claire's Law and Refuges campaign, making misogyny a hate crime would strike at the root of domestic abuse. The preventative approaches would not only target the cycle of abuse, but also help to end the victim blaming that many report. All of the campaigners I've spoken to agree that the proposals will improve lives provided one condition. Kate Smurthwaite. There isn't enough funding. The fact is that the vast majority of people seeking help just can't have it because there isn't somewhere safe to put them or they end up on a waiting list and then they have to go back and keep waiting around. Of course, it's great that the new legislation is saying that local authorities must provide accommodation. But I also think that we have to be aware that simply telling local authorities you must provide X, Y and Z without providing any extra funding for it, all it means is that now local authorities will have less money to spend on libraries and playgrounds and all of these other vital resources. And actually, it's going to create its own problems. What the government actually needs to do is not just say it's your obligation to provide, but actually say, and here is the resource that's going to allow you to do that. At one point in the UK, and it may well still be true, um, the top three charities that address violence against women and girls in the UK receive less funding in total than a single donkey sanctuary in Devon. This issue runs deeper than simply acquiring the money from the public purse. Councillor Grace Williams. The problem is, is that the underfunding is just so severe. It's in so many areas that it's hard to know where to start. The interesting thing is, is that government has started to recognise uh, after the pandemic or in the pandemic, it's not really after it, is it? that there is a need for public funding. But the problem is, is that the underfunding has gone on for so long, for 10 years, that we just will not be able to uh, fix it quickly. We had dozens of staff um, who work all around the council who were deployed to really focus on um, supporting um, our domestic abuse drop-in. Schools have remained open um, and schools have done an an amazing amount of outreach to the families that they know that would be vulnerable by phone um, and 
we don't have extra money to do that. We've just sort of done it. And now local authorities will have, you know, a massive deficit to pay just for the last few months. So, for example, we calculate the deficit. The money that we have used that will not be funded by central government for the services we've used to support vulnerable uh, people is something like £23 million already in those few months. Having allocated the emergency funding during lockdown, the UK has proved it can afford to help troubled people when necessary and adapt policy accordingly. If the bill passes, perhaps the new measures will give victims of abuse the support they need to get help. Karen Bellamy. I think at the moment the stigma around domestic violence is less than it was all those years ago. But I think there is still um, in society uh, a stigma about speaking out about any emotional trauma, which is very damaging. And I think hopefully this bill will help women to look at that and say, right, there is a law and I can go and get help. Back when I was being abused, which, as I said, ended 27 years ago, um, there was very little. There was um, very little advice from anyone. I spent, at one point, three weeks in hospital because of it. Um, But there was no referral. There was no, well, you can go and get help here or there. They gave me uh, Valium or sleeping pills, and that was the solution all those years ago. The Domestic Abuse Bill has already been passed by the House of Commons, the UK's main house, where it was heralded as groundbreaking. It is now awaiting its final approval by the country's upper house, the House of Lords, who will debate the bill and its wording when Parliament resumes in the autumn. Only then can the proposals become law. For Making Contact, I'm Rosie McLeod, reporting from London. You're listening to Domestic Violence in Lockdown, COVID-19 and the UK's Domestic Abuse Bill on Making Contact. For information and resources about domestic violence and support services, go to our website at radioproject.org and click on this week's show. When we come back, we'll hear how survivors of domestic abuse and their advocates have been navigating the pandemic. In March of 2020, countries around the world issued stay-at-home orders to curb the spread of COVID-19. As one Philadelphia Women's Center advocate put it, it was a pandemic within the pandemic of domestic violence. I recently spoke with Elizabeth Jimenez-Yanez, the Policy Communications Coordinator on Violence Against Women and Girls at the Latin American Women's Rights Service in London. We talked about how migrant women in the UK are campaigning to be included in the domestic abuse bill and about the similarities in intimate partner violence in the U.S. and the U.K. during the pandemic. We heard about this search on domestic abuse cases and incidents in China, for instance, and then afterwards in other countries in Europe, France, Italy. So these trends are repeating, and these increasing uh, levels of violence against women and girls was something that was expected as, as lockdowns were imposed. But I think something that it's important to mention is that it's important to speak about the nuances of these increasing numbers. Because we are a service that is very embedded in the community. And that means that a lot of women got to know about our services through the community, so word of mouth. So women used to go to our offices, just pop up and ask to talk to an advisor 
or just uh, call our office and ask for a, an appointment. And what happened to us from our experience is that at the beginning, we didn't see this like high amount of calls, but that didn't mean that we were not experiencing like a surge in domestic abuse cases. What we knew is that for women, it was more difficult to reach for help, but also because we work with women who face multiple and overlapping barriers, this was even more difficult. For instance, we work with women who, who don't speak English and the language barrier plays like a huge role on how to support, on how to, to flee abuse. So what was happening according to our case workers was that a case of a survivor or a victim that in the past took like a couple of hours to sort out, now was taking a couple of days or even a week You said that the cases are becoming more complex. And can you uh, just elaborate a little bit more about how that is happening? So the lockdown was like a fertile ground for this isolation to become even worse. So the complexity of the cases relied on having to live trapped with the perpetrator meant that for many women, they were not able to contain the abuse anymore because in the past they were able to either go to work, to go to the school, uh, or or the perpetrator to go to work, for instance, so they had some time off. So something that we started to monitor and we are aiming to have more numbers is increase of sexual violence within the domestic abuse. So marital rape was something that case workers were reporting more and more uh, amongst the cases that, that they were receiving. During the pandemic? Yeah, during the lockdown, yeah. At the time that they were trapped with their perpetrators, that was a trend we identified. Another thing that was like, just to give you an example, this is just one case. We we had a woman who has a child with the perpetrator and the perpetrator, he has the custody of the child. So when the lockdown started, he immediately said to her, like, you cannot visit her, you cannot take her home with you because of the pandemic. So the abuse, like, again, the, the child was used like as a tool to coerce her and to exert violence towards her. I think she didn't manage to see her daughter for at least three months. So in general, we saw that the experiences of violence of the service users increased and the forms of violence diversified. And you said that there are generally multiple and overlapping barriers for migrant women. Can you um, talk a bit more about what those are and maybe give me an example of how they manifest? It's not new with the pandemic. This was exacerbated by the pandemic. Something that it's a huge barrier for migrant women with insecure immigration status. That means women who don't have a settled status in the UK, which includes women on spousal visas, women on temporary visas, asylum-seeking women, undocumented women, of course, are not able to access public funds. And that's a huge barrier because even before the pandemic, it was shown that four out of five women, this is information from a national organization called Women Safe, were turned away from shelters because they don't have access to public funds. Why is that? Because In this country, shelters are paid through benefits, the housing benefit. And when you are a a woman who doesn't have access to public funds, you cannot access this benefit. And then it's very difficult that shelters 
get you in. But it's not only that, it's also the fact that you cannot access to benefits. And as you know, many women who face violence against women and girls as part of the abuse, they experience financial and economic abuse. And this, this creates a dependency with the perpetrator. Even if they work, many women, their money is taken away from them. Migrant women and migrants in general with insecure immigration status face the possibility of being detained and deported when asking for support. So in the case of migrant women this is and, and survivors of domestic abuse, this is very worrying because migrant women face a real risk of, uh, of detention or deportation when, for instance, reporting the abuse to the police. Because in this country, they have prioritized immigration enforcement and immigration control over the safety of victims. So the police don't have an obligation to report to the home office, but there are some who still do that voluntarily. Yeah. I think this is a good opportunity for me to tell you what we are doing with the domestic abuse bill. There is no clear guidance for the police on how to proceed and support a woman with insecure immigration status. And in fact, in 2018, there was a freedom of information request that it was uh, done by some journalists to the police and they found out that 60% of police forces in the United Kingdom were sharing information with the Home Office for Immigration Enforcement. So that's very worrying. And what we what we are doing with the Domestic Abuse Bill is we are living on an amendment that would incorporate to the bill the establishment of safe reporting mechanisms and an end to data sharing between police and other statutory services and the Home Office for Immigration Enforcement. So what we are arguing is that due to this lack of guidance, police and some police officers are still sharing the information with the Home Office. And as I told you already, the consequences are terrible for for, for survivors and for victims. And this shouldn't happen. And migrant women's safety should be prioritized always and put above any kind of immigration enforcement. How has that campaigning work been going for you as far as being able to make some of those changes that you all are working towards in the domestic abuse bill? So it's been very challenging because um, it's not a secret that the government of, of the UK is hostile towards migration. The narrative is completely hostile. So only one of them was voted and it was an amendment that aimed to lift the no recourse to public funds policy that I told you before during the duration of a pilot project that the government is like uh, presenting as an alternative for migrant women. It was com- completely voted against by conservatives, like all of them, all the members of the House of Commons. And what we are doing now is our strategy is moving towards the House of Lords to incorporate these, these changes to the bill. Otherwise, this bill that has been presented as this landmark piece of legislation is not going to be that. It's going to be failing many vulnerable women who are um, prevented from accessing safety, support and justice. So, I mean, this is a very personal reflection, but we at LORS, we are all migrant women. 
and many of us are migrant women with insecure immigration status working on this. And we, we are sitting on the table with, with decision makers. We are centering the voices of, of survivors who, as part of the abuse, have been always, their voice has been silenced. Part of our aims of the campaign since the beginning has been to put at the center the stories and the voices of these women. So policy changes are based on real stories, on, on women's stories who, who know how the system is failing them. That was Elizabeth Jimenez-Yanez of the Latin American Women's Rights Service in London. You've been listening to Domestic Violence in Lockdown, COVID-19 and the UK's Domestic Abuse Bill on Making Contact. For information about this show and resources about domestic violence and support services, go to our website at radioproject.org. The Making Contact team is Sonia Green, Lisa Rudman, Anita Johnson, Salima Hamarani, Sabine Blazin, Emily Rose Thorne, and I'm this week's host, Monica Lopez. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. <laughs>